Hello, and welcome to episode 8 of On War, the podcast. Tonight, Austin and I explore the legal and ethical dilemmas of the state uses of nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons. Just how much of a threat do they pose? Are they of any use? Or are they the ultimate boogeyman of international relations? So, once again, we're changing things up a little bit. Uh, this time, we're actually following a comment that was led by one of our audience, Austin, over at Cast Crunch. Uh, Kevin Miles, uh, in response to our previous episode on, on the laws and, and norms of war, asked us a couple of questions about uh, how these affect nuclear weapons. We'll, we'll get to the exact questions a little later on, but we thought this would be a good way of sort of extending that particular discussion around perhaps, I'd say probably the area that, that is most recognizable in terms of the laws of war, if not the most important, uh, and where you stand on, on the importance, I guess, um, varies a little bit. But what we're looking at today, of course, is nuclear, chemical, and biological weapons, CRBM. This is a, a pretty big topic, so we're going to be breaking this down into two distinct parts. This first part, uh, this episode, is going to deal entirely with state-based actors, and then next episode we're going to be looking at the non-state actors, the idea of the terrorist bomb or the terrorist uh, biological or chemical attack. Now, no matter how you cut it, no matter how who's using them, I think to many people's minds, these weapon systems represent the unholy trinity of warfare, if you like, the areas in which no person should ever tread. Well, that's a pretty loaded term. And I think that's, in the context of this discussion, that's a good thing, because it puts the reader, or the listener in this case, into the right frame of mind for what we're going to be talking about. Because a lot of what we talk about here, and we're going to be referring a lot back to, to norms, um, which are effectively cultural rules, as we talked about last week. And one of the major aspects of a norm is that it creates this moral standpoint on the use or non-use, or of in this case, a type of weapon system, that have no inherent moral value to them. Yeah, although, I mean, it depends on, on your perspective on these things. Certainly, as as we go on, we'll talk about this in a bit more detail, but there's certainly been moral values attached to their use and the nature of the destruction that they wreck. And, and this is often when we see the sort of the normative discussions about this, they're usually shaped around what is basically, what is a good or bad way for a soldier particularly to die. But before we crack into that, uh, the, the norms surrounding these weapons and and how we understand them. I guess we, we should cover some of the history of these things. Everyone's aware of, of the history of nuclear weapons to some extent. Obviously, that's a very modern weapon system, really. I would imagine all of our listeners are very familiar with the the only two times that they were deployed at Hiroshima and Nagasaki at the end of World War II. But the other two have a more complex history. So, again, chemical weapons are relatively modern. They, they come about like they really come to the forefront of use in, in the First World War. But there were some interesting examples of their um, production, at least in the case of the Second World War. Uh, some of the most famous uh, nerve agents we know of, particularly sarin, was actually first formulated by I.G. Farben uh, in Germany during the Second World War. I.G. Farben being noted for their production of, of things like Cyclone B, which was the, the source of much of the cyanide used during the, the Holocaust. But they weren't deployed for um, a number of reasons. Firstly, the uh, IG Farben had told Hitler in the High Command that it was highly probable, due to an, a number of um, precursor patents filed in the 1930s, that the Allies already knew about it. Although in the case of Sarin particularly, they actually didn't. And also, 
sort of the norms surrounding them and, and the memories of, of, of the First World War still being very fresh in people's mind, that didn't stop people uh, necessarily taking precautions, however. A famous one, Austin, I think we're both quite attached to here uh, in Italy with the Americans. It's a very classic example of one of these technologies backfiring on you. This was a case in the Second World War in 1942 in a, in a quite nondescript military port in, in Italy where a you know fairly random uh, Luftwaffe air raid managed to take out, among other ships, the SS John Harvey. Now, the SS John Harvey was not that much dissimilar on the outside from any other Liberty ship that filled the port. What was distinct about the John Harvey in the port of Bari at that stage was that it was carrying a cargo of around 2,000 M47 bombs. Now, these are chemical warheads. Um, that each contain about 30 kilograms of sulfur mustard each. And that is, of course, the delivery mechanism for mustard gas, the most well-known of the chemical weapons deployed in the First World War. Hitler, for example, um, famously was gassed with uh, mustard during his time on the battlefield. Now, it's really hard to sort of identify the number of direct casualties because, A, it was in the middle of an air raid, and, B, it was immediately hushed up and it didn't really reach the public eye until around the 1970s um, when it started to be declassified. But from records we've, we've found now and from the literature, it's clear that over 600 military personnel, not including civilians in the port, but 600 military personnel were hospitalised as a direct result, identified direct result of mustard gas symptoms alone. Yeah, and it's it's hard to tell exactly why they were there. The official statement remains that it was a just-in-case stopgap, particularly um, the Italian campaign, and then later um, there were concerns at Normandy as well that the Germans de- deployed them f- the first. It was a, a second-strike capability, if you like, although given the ship blew up and at that point everyone had to be very quiet about it, it's very hard to determine exactly what the full contingencies were, even now. Not helping their case is the fact that they deployed what were called chemical mortar battalions, um, which was subsequently used um, in a standard infantry mortar role with high explosive shells. Also, it's important to note that chemical weapons isn't merely um, limited to poisonous gas, although poisonous gas is one of the earliest forms of a chemical weapon. I mean, it goes back even a little bit further you start looking at Napoleonic Wars, and even earlier when we had the use of quicklime or calcium oxide um, in artillery shells, which was designed to detonate and spread over a wide area. And quicklime, of course, is a type of alkali that causes quite significant burns. Of course, the third category of weapons is actually the oldest and has some of the oldest norms surrounding it as well, and that's uh, biological weapons. Now, People might think in terms of biological weapons, they might remember the 2001 anthrax attacks, which we'll look at next episode when we look at the non-state actors using or potential for use of these weapons. Uh, but biological weapons have a very old history. If you consider the medieval use, for example, of pla- uh, the bodies of plague victims uh, to be catapulted into cities in the hopes of spreading the infection and also just to dispose of the bodies themselves. You also have uh, early examples of poison being used in a variety of manners, uh, either for poisoning water systems uh, and wells if they could be found, or poisoning weapons um, 
such as arrows. It's important to note, and this is where we can sort of lead into the normative, that these being the oldest weapons, they have some of the sort of the oldest and most entrenched norms against their use. The two Hindu texts um, that are some of the earliest are known as the Shastras and the Laws of Manu, which both condemn the use of poisons or weapons that are barbed or speared with poison, or, crucially, and this takes it a little bit back to chemical warfare, those whose points blaze with fire, which, of course, is a fancy way of saying incendiary ammunition. But... Alistair, it was also um, used by the Romans, wasn't it? Yeah, so we've got some um, texts through uh, Cicero related to the Roman dictator Lucius Sulla, who made a proclamation at around 81 BCE prohibiting the manufacture, sale, purchase or use of poison and making that a capital crime. Of course, at this point, Roman politics is, is quite convoluted and there's quite a lot of infighting going on, so poison is in this case, is as much a weapon of the assassin as it is um, a potential for military, although that particular proclamation seems to have applied just as much uh, to the military as it did domestically. Alongside this, and, and sort of bringing it into the more modern times, there seems to have been some correlation between the, the, the long-standing taboo against poison uh, interacting with... Uh, the knowledge of, or the emerging knowledge in chemistry. So, in 1874 in Brussels, uh, at the at the Brussels Declaration, then later at the Hague Conferences, both of which we talked about last episode, we see a lot of discussion uh, around um, asphyxiating or deleterious gases, and some debate as to whether or not these new emerging weapon systems, which the uh, conventions would then later be ignored on uh, during the First World War as to whether or not they should be made illegal. A lot of discussion was brought up about, around these things. Was Some people, for example, um, the US delegate, uh, Captain Alfred Mayen, was recorded as saying that such projectiles, as in those loaded with this asphyxiating gas, might be even considered more humane than those which kill or cripple in a much more cruel manner by tearing the body apart with pieces of metal. That's Sorry to interrupt you, Alistair, but that's a quite common justification um, for the development of weapon systems. It's not, in fact, the listeners would be surprised, I think, to learn that it's more commonly used as a justification for new weapon systems than a justification for any sort of limitations being placed upon them. Richard Gatling, who people would recognize the name as the creator of the Gatling gun, believed that his invention would stop wars because by increasing the rate of slaughter, wars would last shorter times and therefore less people would be killed. There's a little bit of fallacy in the logic there. But I think it's important to recognise that just because that was raised doesn't necessarily mean that it, it became, that it's indicative of any sort of moral aversion on the part of that individual. Um, and this is particularly the case, I think, in what we're talking about here with these declarations, which specifically exempt states from any sort of obligation to them in the event that a non-contracting party, which in this case effectively means non-European party, was to enter the conflict on any side, even not just participate, but join in the conflict through other means as well, the rulebook gets thrown out the window. And that's something we see elsewhere as well. Yeah, I'll, I'll just quote here, just so we can catch the audience up. Um, the actual final wording of the, the Hague uh, conference, the section that pertains to these to chemical weapons effectively states, 
that the contracting powers agree to abstain from the use of projectiles, the object of which is the diffusion of asphyxiating or deleterious gases, but further on, that the present declaration is only binding on the contracting powers in a case of a war between two or more of them, and, as you said, ceases to be binding at a time when, in a war between the contracting powers, one of the belligerents shall be joined by a non-contracting power. So, I mean, this is a, a repetition of what we were talking about last episode with the provision of, for example, the dum-dum rounds in India and, and other such weapons, in a much more formalized context, perhaps, but nonetheless, it, it's it's one of these things we all agree to play by the rules, so long as we're all actually playing by the rules. And once that stops, at least according to the official records, there is nothing preventing a change in what happened. The other thing to kind of put forward here, I, I mean, I've explicitly linked the, the taboo against the use of poisons with, with the chemical weapons, and that's actually something that's somewhat debated in the literature. One thing that becomes clear, though, is that after the First World War, the use of chemical weapons, particularly things like mustard gas and chlorine, become inexorably linked to that taboo and bound up in, in the same. In fact, these weapons become and remain uh, a symbol of the destruction of that particular conflict. But the other point to make here, and uh, we see these norms invoked time and time again, and, and as much now in current conflicts and the current deployments, of, of chemical weapons in Syria and their previous deployment in the Iran-Iraq war of the 1980s and in the Anfal campaign that Saddam Hussein pursued against the Kurds in a genocidal, if not genocide, after that conflict, we see these, these norms invoked and ignored time and time again. What we don't see so much, however, is, is the other side of it. Biological weapons have not really been used in modern history, terribly much. There was an example of, of a Japanese unit, uh, Unit 731, which is you know nondescript name for a nondescript clandestine unit that used these weapons in the in the J Japanese um, Chinese War in the 1930s and 40s, although to very limited effect and as much on their own soldiers accidentally as anyone else. But in the modern era, we don't see biological weapons used nearly as much, and we don't see nukes used at all. And this sort of brings us to this, the second part, or the second reasoning that, that occurs in these specialist weapons, and that's the actual utility of them. I mean, if you're in fixed fighting in fixed lines and trenches, you can see the sort of appeal of a, of a gaseous irritant, or even of a, of a poisonous or killing gas, against an entrenched, fortified position of, of some magnitude, although occasionally the winds might muck up your plans in that regard. But the other sort of side of things is with, with the other with other kinds of weapons. It's it's a much more complex picture than that. Yeah, it is. Um, again, we see echoes of it in in the example you just used, but it's a lot more pronounced, I think, in when you look at biological weapon systems. Now, most modern states, at least all of them in the first world, maintain stocks of known biological weapon and biological poisonous agents they just do um there's a number of reasons for this uh, there's a lot of actual beneficial uses for some of this technology it's important to have for the creation of vaccines and the like etc one of the reasons i personally argue that we haven't seen the development or the particular use of biological weapons in the modern era is that they are incredibly difficult to deploy and even once they're deployed they're incredibly difficult to control now this is something we have to delve into a fair bit more next week when we look at non-state actor use of 
biological weapon systems because a state is con- is controlled largely by the fact there's this almost instinctive taboo, this instinctive recoiling that most people have when they think about the prospect of weaponizing disease. What that translates to, if you want to take a realist perspective, however, is the fact that you know there is no way to control a biological weapon particularly on a battlefield scenario, because you're looking at something that's alive in a lot of cases. When you're talking about a bacterial weapon or a viral weapon, it has the ability to to be an effective weapon. It needs the ability to spread on its own past the initial contagion point, at which point you can no longer control it and you can't protect your own from it. Not only that, but this also applies to nuclear weapons. So at this point, I think we should answer uh, Kevin's uh, question more directly. And he asked... Uh, with respect to nuclear weapons, shouldn't we be extremely worried about nuclear weapons eventually being used by more less scrupulous, scrupulous actors, such as religious fanatics or, I guess, rogue states might be implied in this question as well? He further goes on to say that it seems like all that stands between us and a nuclear war, thus explicitly a, a state-versus-state conflict, or certainly potentially a very state-versus-state conflict, is a very strong social norm which may or may not be respected by future parties. And I think military utility is probably one of the biggest reasons why we haven't seen the deployment of nuclear weapons in any conflict, although it has been considered. And this is namely down to the fact that nuclear nuclear weapons particularly do one thing and one thing very well. They, they go bang. Unfortunately, the size of these things is, is far in excess of any conventional weapon. And we simply we, we haven't really had cause to use these things. There's arguments over whether that we had cause in the first place, and I, I don't really want to get into an argument about whether the Home Islands invasion was justified or not. Yeah, and I mean, you're right, Alistair, to an extent, that these weapon systems, while only ever contemplated or threatened at a strategic level, have certainly been um, tested and developed to work on a tactical level. Modern pop culture and military films have... You know, particularly in the late 90s, we're talking about tactical nukes and suitcase nukes. The reality is that we have had small-scale tactical nuclear devices ready for deployment on a battlefield with the doctrinal belief that a nuclear land war could develop. This, of course, developed into things like the current Russian proposal to create a nuclear tank round, um, as well as down to the, the nuclear infantry mortar, the Davy Crockett which had a kill radius that was only slightly smaller than its minimum minimum range. Um, and so I think once we get into nuclear weapons, we almost get a little bit silly and certainly disturbing, but that has never stopped anyone from looking at tactical delivery systems for these weapons. The issue at the end of the day from a utilitarian perspective is that the expense of creating these things, even when compared to some of the latest uh, precision-guided munitions, is, is always prohibitive. And when you start deploying anything bigger than, for example, your your so-called tactical nuclear devices, the inevitable consequence is that you wind up with a blast that not only can affect civilians, which of course invokes the normative response again, but can cause insurmountable damage to surrounding infrastructure that the military, uh, that your own military might want to make use of. Uh, Particularly when you take into consideration the kinds of wars that have dominated the past 30 or 40 years or so, is the deployment of a, of a nuclear weapon with a blast radius of kilometers is uh, frankly laughable when you're trying to contain an insurgency or, God forbid, indulge in a peacekeeping operation. It's just, it's 
not the weapon for the jobs that we've had. The times when it is useful are for, frankly, the destruction of the kind of hardened strategic structures like ICBM silos or nuclear command and control sites that are specifically hardened against nuclear weapons. And it's in that sort of arms race that they really, that's the niche they sit in. But it's also realistically their only use. Yeah, and I think that that is their only practical use. But it's important to realize here, and you know, the question itself feeds into this approach, which is there is this fear that has been developed around nuclear weapons, despite the fact that, I mean, I would argue, looking at the facts, that a chemical attack or a biological attack, even by another state, is much more likely and more risky than any sort of nuclear response. However, and putting aside the laughable oxymoron that is the, the two words tactical and nuke next to each other, what we've seen historically, particularly during the Cold War, is that this has allowed a form of unique brinkmanship. Um, and, and quite often, just sheer dumb luck that we haven't blown each other up. Abel Archer, obviously, and, and Alistair, of course, is, I would assume, aware of Abel Archer in 1983, which was a, a command and control exercise designed to test NATO and Western Europe's ability to launch a first strike that the Russians thought was an actual first strike. And so we came within several minutes of a nuclear war without the Americans even realising they'd done it. When we're talking about nuclear weapons, though, it is really important to remember that at the end of the day, these are people, right? We like to talk about states in a, in a very structuralist manner. But let's take a leaf for a second from the critical school and realise that these are people that have to live with the decision they make. And the, the concept in people's mind of starting a nuclear war, something that is implied and drilled into us as young children through multiple methods, all the way through to adulthood, as something that will end humanity or at least trigger some form of genocidal activity, that creates a huge barrier, a huge psychological barrier to ever actually pulling that trigger on a nuclear attack. So in addition to the societal norm, I think we have to remember that there is a genuine psychological barrier um, in most sane people towards the even prospect of being put in that situation. And no one is really sure what would happen if that order was given. That idea of uh, not knowing where things might go, though, is also the thing that, that's fueled the idea of credible deterrence, or in its sort of logical absurdity, uh, the concept of mad or mutually assured destruction, one of my favorite little initialisms to come out of the Cold War. In in the literature, this is something that's termed strategic interaction, and it's it, it sort of refers to two kind of processes that are occurring. First of all, like you said, we don't know quite what would happen if an all-out no-holds-barred nuclear exchange was going to, to occur. And so we're very hesitant about what we might do. And more importantly, if we started a limited response, what kind of precedent that might set uh, for our immediate opponents, but also opponents in the future. But it also sets up this idea that to be a state and to be a, a not so much to be a state, but to be a world leader, to be a real mover and shaker in the international arena, uh, to be taken seriously, if you like, you really need to be a nuclear power. And uh, uh, this is a, a byproduct of, of the way a lot of these institutions have grown up, particularly if you look at 
the five major nuclear powers as signatories to the uh, non-proliferation treaty just so happened to also be the five permanent members of the United Nations Security Council. You also see in discussions uh, around um, the rivalry between India and Pakistan. In the 1970s, uh, India tested the Smiling Buddha, which was their very first nuclear device. And Pakistan's reaction to, to this was that the only way to guarantee Pakistani sovereignty in the future would be to develop nuclear weapons of them, uh, for themselves. It's in that same light that biological weapons are kept as stockpiles, and chemical weapons as well. That if someone else has them, then we've got to have them ourselves, if only to ensure peace. It's a very strange attitude to have towards some of the most destructive weapons mankind has ever devised. What we have is a situation where people are going, oh, they might have it, so we better have it. Um, and nobody really has ever pushed enough of the message that that in and of itself is really dangerous. Having these stockpiles is the most dangerous thing to come out of the CBR and development, in my opinion. That's something we'll talk about next week. But I think we need to take a step back. And when you look at this as yourselves, as individuals, it's worth thinking about where this takes us as a, as a species, where we've ended up, where we're, we're, we're resting the survival of the species uh, on the basis of this paranoid shell game that people are playing on the highest levels. Yeah, I would question and, and sort of it's sort of implied in what you're saying there. It was explicit in, in Kevin's question about whether or not this game was getting more dangerous, whether or not the costs of entry into the nuclear or the chemical or biological game are getting lower. I think from a state-based perspective, this combination of the strategic interaction, the sort of the, the strategic norms, if you like, the existing legal and social norms and the military utility of these things means that although we have seen in the last 20 years, uh, for example, Pakistan and North Korea both uh, developing and testing not just um, old-school uh, Hiroshima-style um, fusion weapons, but the more advanced fission weapons as well. Their spread has been very limited. And in the times we've seen chemical weapons used, aside from the outlier of the First World War, they've been in horrendous travesties of humanitarian uh, justice and law. But ultimately in fairly small scale. So I, I don't see these things as be becoming sort of an increasing danger, simply because the, the, the combination of these three factors really limits the realistic application of them. I mean, to take nuclear weapons as the ultimate boogie, boogeyman here, they're only useful, really, in that uh, ultimate final showdown between two titanic nuclear powers. And we had 40 years of the Cold War for that to happen, and it, it never did. That's not to say that coincidence implies correlation, but I think there's some strong interactions that were really preventing that. The fact that Abel Archer didn't result in anything because there were human beings uh, ready to say that any to, to actually do this without making a phone call would be insane. You've got another example of this in regards to the, the Russian new, uh, early launch warning system, don't you, Austin? Absolutely. Oh, I mean, I've got a metric ton of these. Um you know, there's the the case of the Americans thinking it would be hilarious to repeatedly make the Russians think that they were able to follow American nuclear subs and then have them vanish, only to reappear suddenly off the coast of Siberia and freaking the fuck out of everyone. The example you're talking about uh, is 1983, where 
a fellow by the name of Stanislav Petrov was at the duty station um, for a command center of a, a new early warning nuclear system in Russia, detected that a missile had been launched from the US. And then he sort of looked at it and went, that doesn't make any sense at all. Why would the US launch one nuke? They've got hundreds. Um, if this is the first strike, it wouldn't be one. Um, so he ignored it. And then a few minutes later, the system said that five had been launched. Now, for an individual at the height of the Cold War, this is only three weeks after the Russians shot down a Korean civilian jetliner, um, to actually put his hand up in the Soviet regime and say, there's something wrong here. We shouldn't immediately launch a retaliatory strike is, is amazing. And it is actually what we're talking about here. So he decided not to escalate that and to ignore it. And it turns out when they did a subsequent um, evaluation, he was actually placed in jail while that happened for negligence. The subsequent review found that it was a flight of geese that the radar had picked up and thought were nukes. So for want of this individual who thankfully had been on the development team for that early warning system, uh, we would have been dead in 1983. Um, we would have ended up in a nuclear war. The U.S. probably would have lost. I, 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 my point is, and, and this is what Alice has also mentioned, is that, you know, these weapon systems are weapon systems. At the end of the day, there are humans involved in this process, and that must always be taken into account when you're looking at their security implications. So getting back to Kevin's question, uh, the answer, is it just a so- very strong social norm that prevents the use of these weapons? I think in the case of nuclear and biological weapons, there's actually a lot more going on there. There is not just the, the norms and laws that we've seen violated in, in chemical weapons, which often have a much more limited effect, uh, and also in, in other styles, uh, other weapon systems, which we talked about last episode, but also the utility of these weapons, what they really are, are capable of doing and what they're really designed to do, and also the sort of strategic consequences of being the first one to use them, or in the case of nuclear weapons, the second I guess the the other question I would have here is, and this is a personal one that I've never really had a satisfactory answer for, are nukes really useful? Are nuclear weapons really that important for a state to to have possession of, and and do they really guarantee your security? And and, and this is a position, personally, that although I've had some limited limited research into this area, my gut feeling is that they're really not. I mean, it represents a colossal expenditure for a threat that never materialized and probably never will. I don't know if you have any thoughts on this, Austin. I think that uh, nuclear weapons create their own imperative. Um, And if we were able to wave the magic wand and make them all disappear tomorrow, the world wouldn't necessarily collapse. I do think, however, that we're in a situation where no one's ever going to give them up um, because it's, it's always that innate institutionalized paranoia that's there's bad guys over there and it's true to an extent it would be a naive individual to say that if the u.s gave up their nukes tomorrow the russians wouldn't use their sudden dominance in such a way that everyone would wish the u.s had their nukes back but i think that it's always been a very hollow threat and i think this is where you're going alistair yeah this is this is the product of that strategic interaction i think what you say there that they create their own imperative is very true and we see this in the India-Pakistan example, which arguably has far less control over it than the Cold War ever did. 
both in a uh, sort of broader international sense, but also in the command and control aspects as to who exactly has access to the big red button. And yet, what we've seen over the past 20 years is simply a, a reproduction of the Cold War in, in sort of micro scale. The second point, I guess, to, to chemical weapons particularly is they have seen use, and they have seen use very recently, and this is an area we've skirted around because there is a, not a lot of information available on the current use in Syria. But the Syrian example, and also more poignantly perhaps, their use in the First World War, despite the declarations at The Hague, uh, and also the, their use and the, their use without repercussions, really, in the Iran-Iraq War in the 80s, and then Saddam Hussein's use of, of them against the Kurds, really begs the question whether the norms against those particular weapons have ever truly been effective. And again, I'd argue, really, what's held them back has been the military utility, or lack thereof, rather than rather than the social or legal norms surrounding them. It's really tempting to simply say, no, they haven't. Um, and a lot of the evidence, particularly the evidence you've pointed to, would argue that they haven't. I would argue that they have, in a, in a, in a, in a way, right? And the way I mean is that what they've done is they've delegitimized the use. So... Chemical weapons now come with an opportunity cost in the same way as a biological weapon would. If a state uses a chemical weapon and gets caught, they immediately lose all legitimacy for their claim with with most of the West. Um, you'll notice that Donald Trump, he launched a questionably effective tomahawk strike on the basis of his personal reaction, it seems, to evidence of a chemical weapon attack. You know, this is in the in a situation where over 600 have been reported. But chemical weapons, I think, has been affected by the norm in that it's institutionalized an aversion to their use. And immediately we associate their use with, with evil, right? That said, though, and this is where I think it's important, we see chemical weapons as in clouds of poisonous gas that kills people as bad. That's against the norm. However, what's also against the law is the use of things like tear gas, and tear gas is specifically mentioned in international law in military applications, but the U.S. has been using it for years. White phosphorus as well is at least questioned, if not banned, by certain treaties. The U.S. has been using it for years. Both of those are considered okay. And so I would argue that's where the norm draws the line. The norm is that has mobilized public opinion against the use of certain chemical weapons in a way that international law by itself has never really been effective at doing. And that's really the key to both this week's discussion and from the previous episode. None of these things act in isolation from each other. And in fact, in the broader study of war and conflict, nothing ever acts in isolation from its human, political, and social factors. Well, that's all we have time for tonight. We hope we've at least begun to answer your question, Kevin. And for all our other listeners out there, if you have any thoughts of your own, please don't hesitate to chime in, either in the comment section below via our email, or at our new Reddit. If you'd like to go the extra mile, please consider supporting us through Patreon. As full-time students, we couldn't have even got this far without our patrons, and with just a little bit more support, we can do so much more, improving both the sources we use and the equipment we record with. As always, further reading on today's episode and previous ones can be found on our blog at www.onwarthepodcast.wordpress.com. Join us next week for part two of this episode as we look at what happens when these weapons fall into the wrong hands, non-state actors and terrorists. Once again, 
thank you for listening and good night.